need some motivation on your Chinese business endeavor, may be curious about what the Chinese business environment is all about, or want to laugh out loud listening to war stories on the ground in China, then this is your show, China Business Cast. It's Lena and China Business Cast. Today, I am trying to answer this question that appeared in my mind just last week. There were severe COVID outbreaks in China that were attributed to mismanagement of cold chain facilities. They were saying that probably in Russia, where the goods come from, the infection rate is very high, and that's why the COVID reached China together with the goods. And then some of our clients at Litao, my company that specializes in helping European food and beverage brands enter and sell in China market, we had some clients stop their China market entry process because of these news, fearing that maybe some warehouses will be closed or the consumers will not be interested in buying anything because of these risks. And so I personally got curious how come I can still see a lot of goods being bought and being sold and how would you manage successfully such a crisis. And so I reached out to an old friend of mine. I know him since 2015. His name is Bjorn. He comes from Netherlands and he was very to the point and very pragmatic in his introduction. So let me tell you a little bit about him. He's the managing director of Arctic Solutions, which is a TP partner. They work with uh, all the platforms in China, including JD, Tmall, also Tmall Global, and Kaola. So they have been in business since 2015 and started with cold chain specifically. Yes, in Europe, it is very hard to imagine selling ice cream online, but this is uh, Bjorn's favorite case to talk about. They just reached 35 million RMB in uh, revenues. And he will be telling us during this episode about why this was successful, even during these outbreaks, how they managed it, and whether really there is a crisis as it might appear on the media. So I'm really happy to have Bjorn with us today. I hope you will enjoy this conversation. It is really two people <laughs> who work with food every day talking to each other about their business practices and what works, what doesn't. I hope it leaves you with inspiration. Please enjoy. Cool. So, hi Bjorn. Hi, um, Bina. Maybe you can tell me a little bit about yourself and uh, how did you start this business and what do you do and where are you at at the moment? Yeah, so Bjorn from the Netherlands. Been here uh, a long time, like 15 years. 15, um, wow, that beats me, I'm 12. I'm getting to the top now. There's not a lot of people longer here. <laughs> no. Yeah. So uh, six years ago, we started the current business, Arctic Solutions, so where we focus on e-commerce and food. And we started, there's also the reason I think why we're also talking, we started with a focus on cold chain. Now it expanded, but we still do quite a few cold chain or chilled. Uh, it's not only frozen it's also chilled of course and so like things like chocolates and they, mm. they, they, need also, they also need a chilled solution at least in the summer and as i said e-commerce so we're a tp Timo partner trade partner both words are used for the same uh, abbreviation so we work with Timo, jd kaula a lot of platforms to help our clients sell their products directly to the consumer so 
just to, to explain to the listeners that I actually did meet you when you were just starting your business. And I think that you were one of the very first entrepreneurs to understand the opportunity with cold chain. Like nobody could see that cold chain could actually be a thing in e-commerce. So today I was very, very curious to talk to you about how this developed, how it expanded and how it changed. So what I was doing in 2015, if you remember why we met, is Mm -hmm. um, I had a client who wanted to sell salmon to China. And this client had 7 million euros in turnover and they just couldn't believe that Chinese consumers wouldn't know about them. So it was a lot of fun to tell them that actually, you know, your reputation is limited to Europe and they just couldn't believe it. And at that point, it was a very beginning of those special zones. And in Hangzhou, where Kaolai is established, they had this zone where they were just sending beef from Uruguay and then shipping it directly to consumer chilled. So it was those times. And at that time, selling salmon through cross-border e-commerce with no additional regulations was still possible. And I remember that we were talking about it. But then in just one month, the laws changed. And while I remained in the field of B2B business development, where we worked with distributors and we scale you know, through the distribution networks. So with this project, we first entered Hong Kong and it was very successful for the next five years. But that meant that this regulation just killed the whole project. (laughs) So I wonder, you know, how did you come up with this idea and how did you deal with these challenges? I just gave up basically, right? And I just went back to what I know, how I do very B2B. Yeah, for for us, we started because we wanted to do e-commerce. But and you started TP like service, but there's so many TPs already eh? at that mm. moment. Now even more, but that, there are thousands and thousands of TPs. So we felt we needed a niche, and that niche was focusing on food and specifically focusing on frozen and, and chilled products. Because for a lot of companies, it's just too hard. Eh? It's too hard. It to is very hard. Food. Yes. Uh, so we we decided to focus on that at first because we needed a niche. Otherwise, we would just be like any other TP and we wouldn't have any USB uh, compared to them. So that's the reason why we started. Also, at that time, not at the moment anymore, but at that time, I had another partner in the company who already was doing a lot of trading for this kind of product. So a lot of meat frozen, mostly frozen from Europe, from the US. We also had some connections already in the industry. So we had direct connections to certain you know, Australian beef suppliers, their farms basically but as you also mentioned it, it turned in the beginning it very quickly it became quite in the beginning it was oh there's a whitelist and these products are available or allowed and that is on there but quickly it changed also to oh but it still has to come from a country that has a, an agreement with china that dutch pork for instance can be imported into china and also needs to come from an approved factory so that kind of took away the the advantages for cross-border. So then at that moment, it became just like the same regulations basically as for a regular trade. Mm -hmm. There was not a real advantage anymore. So for us, it also meant we didn't only focus on the niche anymore. We we took it a little bit broader in terms of working with other types of food and now also health kind of products. But we also found that although there's opportunities there, certainly it was quite niche. It was maybe also too niche for us. You need a diverse client base also, and that was too narrow. 
I feel like it was just very risky because it, it does require quite a bit of investment to develop a brand in the consumer's eyes. And so yeah. since I was working on it for a year and finally we had a solution and imagine, so of course the client is also losing all faith and hope in this market and for them, because they are already making 700 million euros for them to yeah. invest in something uncertain is just a waste of time. So I'm, I'm wondering what were the first clients in your case and what were the food categories and how fast did it have to change in order to still make the business sustainable? Because for me, it happened in a year. What was possible a year ago, after a year, it just became impossible. Just how it yeah. For us, we never really did a lot of frozen or chilled, like if you talk about meat or fish. Mm. So for us, it, it kind of the cold chain kind of developed into ice cream. Interesting. So similar challenges, actually even harder logistics wise, eh, because ice cream requires uh, even more colder uh, temperature. Process. Colder temperature, but also if you send a frozen steak, if it defrosts a little, it's fine. Right? Nothing. Mm. Nothing is ruined. But if ice cream defrosts a little, it loses shape. Uh, basically, it, it's ruined. So that makes it even harder. But I think that's where we really started to, to have success with frozen products. We do this with Russian ice cream, actually. That was our first big success case. Yeah, maybe you can tell me more about it. That's very interesting. Yeah. I heard yeah, so about they, that they, success story and congratulations. Yeah, so then we Not started easy. with them uh, a couple of years ago, like three, I think. Yeah, it came because Timo contacted us and they said, uh, that we see, uh, Dave, of course, access to a lot of data. We see there is a demand for Russian ice cream, but not much on offer. And there was some fake Chinese-made Russian ice cream. But Correct. Really yes, much. yes, yes. They yeah. use this so, origin of country to make something in China, pretending to yeah. be an international yeah. product. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that happens a lot, of course. Yeah. But you can't really fool the customer no. that way. So Timo asked me, because I, I have some good connections in Russia, so they asked me, can you get us a brand? So via connections, I got introduced to a few brands. In the end, Iceberry was the one who was the one the most. They just also established a company here. So mm -hmm. it made it easier. There was a Russian CEO who understood the market, who knew you know, what we were talking about. So it was much easier to convince them to start. So we started with them in early 2019. And very quickly... Yeah, you start small, right? so you start also selling, for instance, from where, one warehouse. And which so warehouse, which city yeah. did you choose? That was in Shanghai. You start from this reason. That's the usual. That's why I was curious, because yeah. this is how yeah. I've heard it done. Usually Shanghai and then you scale out if that works. Yeah, you need to see also which products. Yeah? They had a lot of SKUs, which products were the best sellers. Yeah? So mm. you don't want to have multiple warehouses and then stock in all these places and then that certain products just don't work. Yeah, so you need to do it step by step. So we started with one warehouse and, and step by step, we moved to seven warehouses. Wow. All over Beijing, but also Heilongjiang. And so you need that coverage because otherwise you can't really deliver. De deliver in 24 hours. Yeah. And, and also not the, the right quality, basically. It needs to mm. be there within 24 hours to maximum two days. That's what for the dry ice solution is, is maximum two days. Yeah, you can put even more dry ice in, but then... The weight doesn't work anymore. Eh? The, the, the shipping will be too expensive. So two days is within 48 hours delivery is maximum. So for that, we found that seven is the, is the right amount to be able to handle the whole country. 
because you are at some point you start to sell really to the whole country Funny and it happened for you in three years yeah oh, that was all in the first year already to scale up funny thing about the regions is that you would expect in the winter winter time eh, like now that uh, the sales in maybe Guangzhou are, are still eh, well, temperature wise but actually for instance Heilongjiang where it's really cold there it sells comparatively well during the winter because people there are used used to the cold and also have uh, central heating so they still purchase ice cream while in Shanghai people kind of stop I mean of course there's some consumption but it's pretty limited but in, in actually the coldest place mm-hmm. in China there is the best sales so we were talking to Guangming Dairy about this and their research suggests that uh, in Shanghai at least ice cream has become this snack that's boosting the energy and your mood so like 90% of consumption of ice cream in Shanghai is consumed from 2 p.m. till 4 p.m. as an afternoon snack and that's why mm. the products they're introducing are extremely pretty so that people would mm. be holding it with the left hand and taking picture with the right. They say the Chinese consumer only has one hand and you need to design products that accommodate this current behavior. So, however, I don't know anything about Heilongjiang, so it's very interesting. And she said also, the person who was telling me about this, she said that in winter, nothing changes because people are still in the office and they still need this boost of happiness Mm. or boost of energy from 2 to 4 p.m. And they have developed wow. SKUs in order to cater to these needs that they have. So it's yeah. a little salty, but a little sweet, not too sweet. You know, certain amount of calories. <laughs> yeah. In our experience, there is definitely a season, a high season. Interesting. Season. Mm-hmm. So there is, it definitely goes down, but you're talking really 10, 20% of what it is in the summertime. Mm. Wow, so that's a big dip. Yeah, there is at least online. Uh, maybe offline behavior is, is different. I'm not really, really aware of that. But although we do a little offline also, and, and there you see the same kind of behavior, I have to say, but the sample size there is not as big. Yeah, so to, to continue, I with Iceberry, after the first year, we also started expanding to other platforms. So it started on Tmall. It started on Tmall Local eh, because they did have a, a company here, so they could open their own uh, local store. And then at that time, Timo Global, for instance, so cross-border e-commerce, they didn't even have a cold chain solution. So that is quite recent. So I think I would say a year, a year and a half ago, Timo wow. only Timo Global had a cold chain solution, which to this day is not great. It's not uh, recommended still. We had uh, the ice bearing, but also some other ice cream clients on there, one from the UK. And we found there was still a lot of problems there. Like the and what are the, uh, the return? Mm-hmm. Return, rate, basically because they, did, they don't have this nationwide storage available. So it's, mm-hmm. it's all from once, off Mangzhou or Ningbo, I believe. But mm-hmm. anyway, this region. So you can't uh, service the whole country with, from one warehouse. So there were in the beginning a lot of problems with ice cream not arriving in the right uh, quality. So the return rate was like 20, 23%. Well, it should be about three. So it's 20% more than, than, wow. than usual. Time, and so did has... the Tmall contribute to your covering your losses because it was their mistake or it was solely on you? No, no. That is that is usually on the logistics partner, which in this case okay. is Chinese, yeah. but that's an Alibaba yes, company. Yes, correct. So they cover that. And also the costs are just quite high 
So uh, yeah. that also makes it hard to make it work uh, from a financial standpoint. But also, I think after the consumer has a bad experience once, then everybody will know about it. And yeah, yeah. it actually doesn't matter how much money you lose. It really matters that you just lost your reputation. And <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 Wow. I mean, you, you, you can do all the customer service you want, uh, yes. but people have these experiences. They will leave a better review and yes. it, will, it will kill the store and the brand even. So, wow. So how did you manage of- that? Because there yeah, were so, a lot of bad experiences. Yeah, so yeah, for Iceberry, it didn't really matter much because it was just a small part of, of their whole online operation. Now it has improved, but it's still a very small store in terms of volume compared to the Timo Classic or even the JD store. Mm, so, okay. it, yeah, so it's a bit of a... For them, it's not important. But for, for instance, for the UK brand, this, this was their only store, right? They didn't have an entity here. So they decided to, to quit. To stop the store so and and i couldn't really blame them it's like yeah it's not working it's not something we can fix and in a way maybe we a little bit used as a guinea pig so their service is better now but we were they were one of the first movers onto Timo global and it was maybe a little bit too early now it is better but it's still not optimal and it's still not how, how in my opinion i think it still needs some time to to develop that nationwide network coverage yeah yeah yeah, yeah coverage yeah so now I hear that first, it's very interesting that you have this kind of relationship with Tmall that they can come to you and tell you that, you know, I see this gap and there is this opportunity and they can even pinpoint the country of origin. And they come to you saying that as soon as you can bring me this, then I can sell this amount of goods for you, right? Yeah. And then on top of that, you go to the Russian, you know, network and then say, look, there is this opportunity and you need to do this and that. And it feels like they would have never registered a company in China unless they listened to you. And probably you knew that there is this challenge with the cold chain logistics at that time. And you yeah. offered that probably it's better to think a few steps ahead and invest a little in opening your yeah. own. Right. So it was all really and this is what I educate my clients all the time. I say that you need to think of every player in this game as a teammate. You cannot be thinking mm-hmm. that this guy is trying to earn money from me or I'm trying to earn money from them because it's so complicated and there are so many challenges. You really need to be thinking that you're all in the same game on the same team. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. I wonder how did you manage to achieve that? It's not easy. We spend a lot of time building the right connections uh, with Tmall. I think compared to other TPs, we do something, with, what we do differently is we bring a lot of clients on our own. Uh, so there is a lot of TPs that Tmall contact, Tmall business development contacts the brand, says, hey, there might be an opportunity. They go to basically all TPs and say, hey, who wants to work with them? Right? Or they would recommend five or whatever, five TPs. But we bring our own clients. And that is good for Timo also, right? We do our own BD. So if we bring clients that gives us a little bit of a step up from the other TPs that just are sitting there waiting for, okay, send clients my way. We actively bring clients to Timo. So that's good for them too. So that builds a kind of relationship where you also get a bit of these, you know, they, they will ask you for these inside tips uh, or they give you these inside tips. And for now, this, this would be good. There's an, uh, uh, there's an opportunity here for this kind of product. So in the end, you know, you know how it works in China. It's all about uh, networking and, and, and getting your building the right type of relationships. So 
And how do you see this developing further? You said that also you need to have some kind of cold chain solution for chocolates, right? Maybe you can yeah. tell me more about that. Yeah, so we, we, for instance, we work with, we have a few clients that have chocolates. So either chocolate like sports nutrition, so it's like protein, sugar-free protein chocolate. And they have many of these kind of products. Also a Russian brand, by coincidence. But also with Belgian chocolate, in the winter, you're, you're fine. But in the, in the summer, you really need to have a, a chilled solution. So it's more like a hybrid solution. So in the winter, a, a normal warehouse is used and normal transport is used. But in the, in the summer, it is chilled. So you also need a, a flexible solution because you, you could also say, oh, let's do it the same the whole year. But yeah, that would just add too much to the cost. So in the summer, you have a different a chilled solution so that at least it's, uh, I believe it's 18 degrees. But also for the last mile delivery, you need to, to take care of that yeah, for chocolate. So and last mile, it's there. always ice or? It is uh, dry ice in most cases. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Wow. And it still uh, makes uh, sense in, financially? In, for the... Yeah. But chocolate, it, it's not dry ice. Eh? Chocolate is just uh, ice packs. It makes uh, sense financially, yes, because the, the logistics cost are, of course, higher for these kind of solutions. But if you talk about local, uh, so Timo Classic, JD Local, you have, it's not that much more. It is about 50% more. But the products have enough value. Belgian chocolate, I mean, it's not super cheap. So there is enough margin there to, to cover for that. And same for, same for ice cream. I personally believe that it is sometimes safer and you will be getting higher quality goods if you buy things through these solutions rather than go to a supermarket or a convenience store, because then a lot of things have melted along the way. And because they don't have very good AC systems during the summer, like the chocolates there will be melted if you want to buy any chocolates. So definitely it seems like somehow the speed of development didn't cover the required necessities to maintain the right room temperature, which it's totally fine for the Chinese locals, right? Like in summer, if it's hot outside, it's hot inside. In winter, if it's cold outside, it's cold inside. This is just how they live. (laughs) So it seems like suddenly e-commerce offers higher quality goods and then people are very happy to pay for it, higher price. I think consumers, while they're buying things online, they also demand a higher level, more quality. Imagine if you go buy some chocolate in the store and you get home and you see it's been melted and it's been misshaped and because of it, it's been melted before. Do you really go back to the supermarket and complain? Not really, probably. But online, you would. You would complain. I see. So you feel Uh, more empowered as a consumer. Yeah. yeah. Because you're no longer anonymous. You have rights. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, you're not anonymous. <laughs> you have a voice and store owners, brands, or the DPs who operate the store for the brand, they, they care about that. So they will they will make sure that you're happy and that you don't leave. So whether it's sending a new product or a full refund, or there's never any real discussion on that. If a customer complains, you refund them 100% because it's not worth that they start complaining and yeah, take this, basically the score of your store down. And it feels like people, when they're shopping offline, they do the due diligence or research about the product on the online platform, right? Like if you go to a supermarket, you don't know anything about this imported or local product. So you go on Taobao or Tmall and do your research, find out what were the reviews 
and basically see if the price is better on the shelf or online. And only then yeah. the consumer makes, you know, purchasing decision. Yeah, uh, <laughs> it makes it much more easier to research. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy. Okay, so my other question for you was, well, my company was really affected because of the pandemic, because it's a lot of B2B meetings that were fueling the success of our sales. And so there was always like, I would be in two or three meetings every week with the client that's coming in from overseas. And now this dynamic has changed. So this year it's better, but last year it was a lot of losses. So I wonder how did your company deal with the pandemic and what were the effects and how did it go? Yeah, I can't really say. Of course, it had some effect because, you know, for two weeks or two months, we couldn't go, you know, work in the office and everybody was working from home. And of course, this kind of thing, doing e-commerce is okay. It doesn't have that big of an impact. I'm sure it did have impact, but I can't really compare it because we, we were also experiencing as a company just a quite quick growth. So we were still growing very fast. So yeah, then you're not really complaining. Did we maybe even had more growth without the pandemic? Yeah, probably. But yeah, it's very hard <laughs> to assess that that impact. On the other hand, people started buying more online, of course, at that time, even more. There was a surge, specific products, for instance, coffee. Coffee was consumed, was consumed a lot more online because people couldn't go to a Starbucks, couldn't go to a lock-in coffee or uh, to one of the coffee chains. So they started buying more online. So for specific products, you saw really a, a quick, a steep rise. Of course, also health-related products. Yeah? So everything, everything to do with boosting your immune system that was that, that started selling really well. And did you have brands for that already? You were prepared, uh, for, for health, or did you yes. very quickly? accommodate this new development it was something we were just starting off in so that gave us also more like okay let's try to find more good brands in the health space so that's been like a development of the over the last year and a half i guess but it started around yeah around covid first hit uh, because you could see a spike in, in in demand for these kind of things so for us it's always it's two ways first goes on the demand right what are the chinese what is potential, right? It doesn't make sense for us to work with brands that, that have not enough potential because there's no, either no demand or their price is too high. Or So we always do a lot of research before we, we start working with a client. And so we do what we call a market scan. So we look at, okay, this kind of products you have, who is selling it, where are they selling it, how much are they selling, for what price, uh, just to really get a feel for the, the competitor, the competitive space that new brand will be in. And then that, that's really different. Than, for instance, food is much easier to start in than health because food, people are willing to try an ice cream or buy this chocolate bar. And if they don't like it, they don't like it. They will not buy it again. If they like it, they will, of course, return. But for health, it's very different because people are less likely to just experiment or just try it out. So they are very stuck to the things they know. So the big brands who have been here a long time, like Swiss or these Australian brands that have been here, uh, Fire and Die Go away already for maybe 10 years. Yeah, they have a big advantage because people are, le- are not that inclined to, to change from that, to break their buying pattern, basically. Yeah, don't uh, don't fix price. something that's not broken, right? Yeah, They're just yeah. going with what is not broken. It worked for them for many yeah. years. So now yeah. it's a very risky 
endeavor to try out something new, high opportunity cost. Yeah. 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 So there are a lot of opportunities within the health, but it does take a longer ramping up time right, mm. to, to get really the sales going compared to food, for instance. What about health foods? So what is the distinction? Do you mean supplements when you talk about health? Or yeah, so okay. vitamins, supplements, immune, immune boosting okay. supplements, these kind of things. But you also have, of course, you have food, but you also have healthy food. Eh? So correct, correct. Better for you or all yeah. this? Yeah. What you see now is that, for instance, with snacks, that people are more focusing on, I wouldn't say they're healthy, but less, less bad for you. For yes, instance, better uh, for you. That's what I'm saying. Chocolate. <laughs> people love chocolate, but they still, now they're looking more for like sugarless. Mm. Right? So th- that is, okay, it's still chocolate, but it's not. I don't know you, if people love chocolate. Do you think Chinese people love chocolate? I think yeah. the love for chocolate is so minimal compared to European love for chocolate, you know? Oh, okay. <laughs> that is true. That, that is true. Yeah. I think yeah, they're starting right. to experiment with chocolate, but yeah. they much yeah. more love their, I don't know, dates or, you know, yeah. like juju, yeah. something like that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, compared to Europe, it's, yeah. it, it's still in the early stages. That is true. Yeah. And I'm very curious about coffee. So if people started buying coffee to make it at home, did that trend continue after the after no, they put it, it in the home? Back a little, oh, wow. It, really? A little. There was a, re- a rise. There is a, but, mm. but yeah, of course, there was a, after everything opened up again, uh, mm. there was a drop again. But it's higher than before. That's for sure. Yeah. Interesting. And do you have some clients selling coffee no we have no tea clients tea clients interesting yeah so (laughs) european tea to chinese interesting it's a bit of a challenge okay so my next question was that what is your process how the clients find you how they approach you you said that you do your own bd and maybe you can share one case study so you shared a little bit about the ice cream but maybe there's something else that you want to share yeah, so our process is how clients find us is we, although we do a lot of marketing, of course, for the stores, for our clients, we don't really do that much marketing for ourselves. Yes, I it's know. Same my problem. Yeah. <laughs> it's like uh, if you have a, a company that builds uh, or fixes people's roof, your own roof is leaking. Yes, or you so, don't have shoes if you make shoes, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's mostly word of mouth. As I said, also network, but also having a few success cases like Iceberry, that brought in, we were also a Russian oral dental hygiene brand called Splat. So that they mm, came in. Wow, via, I know that case study, yeah. actually. So they came in via, I think you also know, especially with Russian companies, they don't really trust no, no. easily. No. So once you build a good reputation with one or two, then they all seem to find you. That's, that's, <laughs> that's of course, I think still the most important part. And you had uh, the Russian-speaking service providers, yeah, so right? That, so, that, yeah. That's also what we specifically hired account managers who could also speak Russian. So they speak Chinese, English, and Russian. Not all, yeah. but a few. And, and that makes, of course, also a difference. It's just uh, to understand the business culture uh, there and also just language. Because sometimes you still speak with people who are the export manager but cannot speak uh, English very well, which complicates things, of course. But sometimes they can speak Chinese, right? Yes, that's true. That's very interesting. There's a lot of uh, Russian uh, staff for working for Russian brands. And if they do, most of the people now you meet, if they're responsible for China uh, export or whatever, they can speak actually Chinese. Yeah. 
so mostly word of mouth how people find us. And on the other hand, when we start with a client, this is, as I explained earlier, also a little bit, we really do a lot of research. This is usually just free of charge. So we do this market scan to see what, what is the competitive space that the brand would be in. We make a strategy. So, okay, what would be, it's a high level strategy at first. So like, okay, where, where to focus on? What are the target groups? The men, women, big cities, smaller cities, etc. And then the Me, second, and I start part. from the other way around. I start from focusing on two or three products because the client comes and they want to sell their whole portfolio and they have like 200 SKUs. And then mm-hmm. my biggest challenge is to take them down from showing a Chinese distributor 200 SKUs and really to making them yeah. trust themselves that two SKUs is enough for the first half a year. You know, I don't know how it yeah, works yeah. in e-commerce because maybe you can put 200 SKUs in e-commerce. Maybe it's not so much of a problem as it is when you're going offline, you really need to develop that product. Yeah, I think it's a little bit different because if they have 200 SKUs, you never start with that. We always <laughs> will recommend based on the research, like we think you should start with these products uh, and some maybe not at all. But on the other hand, we're also not fortune tellers. So we usually recommend clients to start with a limited set, but also don't send over two, two containers right away, right? Use maybe even air freight to send a couple of pallets of each SKU. And that, because very quickly, you know what are the best sellers. So very quickly, you will find that out. And sometimes you'll be surprised. We had a client from the Netherlands once and they sold uh, cutlery and kitchen knives. So we, in the beginning, we were like, kitchen knives, that's where we need to go because Chinese uh, use chopsticks. So why would they want to buy cutlery online? Turns out, although the kitchen (laughs) knives sold well, apparently they do buy cutlery. But the difference was, this being a European brand, all these uh, cutlery sets, they were like uh, 22-piece sets that nobody buys here. But if you sell them a four-piece set or an eight-piece set, that went really well. So So they actually changed their SKUs based on the feedback in the market. And then it started, also the cutlery started selling. The 22-piece went out went out because nobody is going to buy that. But eight and four-piece actually sold really well. I, nobody expected that. Yeah? But then you just find that out by all the stories online. And if you don't have huge stock volumes, then that's okay. right? Then you, So you need to be a bit agile and flexible in the beginning to find out what is the best product uh, or the best products to start with. And this I can understand because in a Chinese household, nobody has this obsession with having all of the cups the same for each family member to have sets that are very beautiful at the dining table, you know, which we have an obsession in Europe. Like it has to have matching, you know, I don't know, (laughs) all the colors have to be matched and uh, otherwise it's just not pretty enough for us. To have a dinner, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and actually, the last step we have in that process is we do a PL, profit and loss projection. So, where all the what we see in terms and based on that market scan, like what are expected uh, sales volumes on a monthly basis. But of course, and that's most important for the client is what is the investment that is needed in yes. terms of marketing okay. budget, logistics cost our cost to run the store. And what would be uh, the project that you would be taking? What would be the budgets and what would be the return? When you say, yes, this one is I'm interested in. I think for us, it needs to have the first year, it needs to have at least a volume of about 5 million RMB mm. annual for the first year. Anything less than that is just very small and indicates that there's not enough potential. 
because also for us, the large part of how we are paid or how we make our money is based on the commission uh, the the sales on the sales revenue. So we get mm. a revenue share, basically. So it's also really in our own interest to make it work uh, so that, that the sales are good. So less than 5 million is just not interesting. But if you talk about, for instance... So 5 shop, million, what is the export price? Then it's like 2? In a lot of cases, we don't even know. Oh, so we, okay, we make, so you make, collaborate with the brand in that way. Yeah, so the, mm-hmm. we give them that P&L projection and that's based... It's not technically. It's not a PNL because the cost of goods uh, sold is not in there. Because in most cases, yes. especially at that stage, we don't know that. Yes, so yes. There is a balance, and that balance should definitely be positive. But if the brand actually makes money in the first year, we don't know that at that point because we don't know the cost of goods on their side. Interesting. In interesting. So my approach is the opposite. We aim at X work sales volume of a million euros. But that yeah. would mean, in your case, something like 3 million euros. But that's in three years. This is what we're reaching. Oh, okay. Yeah. So for us, we, we just talk about revenue in the, in the first year. But in a, good, a really good one with a lot of potential, then you're talking about 10 to 12 million on a, for one store. Yeah, so In the first uh, year? So wow. Yeah. And that's, you did that with ice cream, right? This yeah. Was something so the ice like cream that. went from zero to 35 million in two and a half years. Hmm. But then Who could have know, known, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah this is the team all apparently. That's why. Yeah, team all. <laughs> you know, yeah. so I will share a funny story. So this seven hundred million euro turnover client that I met you because of their mm-hmm. best selling product in Hong Kong for three years, and it only stopped because of the changes in the in the market. At that time, they had protests, and so that stopped. It was organic gyoza dumplings. Wow. <laughs> what? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. You yeah. never know, never, really. And it was going know. like, I think, two or three containers every couple of months, you know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This was a shock for me as well. Okay. So now we reached the client journey and some of the case studies. And I think the main question that I have for you today is about this cold chain situation, because now there have been many reports saying that you can import COVID through cold chain. Mm -hmm. And there have been reports that especially it's the case with Russia, because Russia has anti-sanitary conditions. So I wonder, what is your feeling about it? Because I had clients drop out because of these news. And they say we need to wait for later times. So I wonder, how did you face this? How these news affected you, if at all? And uh, what do you see in terms of consumers? Did they stop buying Russian ice cream because of that? Or it's still rather, you know, they are not so freaked out? I think there was, of course, impact after that. I think it started with like uh, frozen salmon or imported salmon. Yes, fish. Mm -hmm. And also from Russia, that's true. So... I think the impact, there was impact for sure, especially last year when that started happening. Uh, for instance, certain warehouses got closed off, so that has an impact. So certainly we couldn't deliver in certain uh, regions of the country anymore. So there was a, a, an impact. Of course, co- handling costs went up. So every piece needs to be tested for COVID. Wow. So, so you, any ice yeah. cream you ship yeah. out of the warehouse is tested for COVID now? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I'm sure it's some kind of quick test, but it still yeah. it adds it adds a handling charge basically. Yes, to logistics. Yes. Warehouse needs to do this. 
So I think that's the biggest uh, impact. So the cost there went up. And from the consumer's standpoint, yes, there were, especially when that news really hit, you did see a drop in sales because of that. Was that And really what was the drop? Was it? Yeah, I would say 10 to 20%. So it's not, mm. it's not huge. It's not like it suddenly stopped. People were still buying it. Most people were still buying it. But yeah, it did have an impact, but it wasn't that bad. It was manageable. So I think, and this is what I always emphasize, is that if your clients trust your brand and they have a certain liking to the brand, they will trust that this brand will take care of them too. But yeah. when you're buying anonymous fish from anonymous people as raw materials that yeah. are handled by anonymous factories that are coming through some alternative channels sometimes, then this is anyway a business that maybe nobody should be in, you know? <laughs> And as a result, when people lose the opportunities, actually, because something was mismanaged and now it is so clearly visible. So also yeah. from my experience, what I'm advocating, I'm saying that these brands who have been doing things well, they will be even more appreciated and they will have even more opportunities. And those brands who were not handling their things well, it seems like yeah. it's time for them to move out because this market yeah. is becoming sophisticated. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, in the shop, you were actually, yeah, you were clearly communicating that also. Eh? So you were like, you're, you're explaining what the procedures are to make sure mm. that it doesn't have COVID, right? So that is explained. Oh, so it was the consumer service representative who would be going through this talk with individual customer when they were considering to buy ice cream. No, no, it was, it's like on the page, information mm, available at okay. the, on the page. It would be a short video of how it was handled or just wow. explanation of these okay. procedures. So that is something that, because that gives people that confidence, right? You, hmm. you can you can try to ignore it, but people still know about it. So yes. it's better to be upfront about it. Eh? If you warn people, are, are, are like, hey, we are taking care of this. We know this hmm. is happening, but it's not happening with us because these are our procedures. So that is that we certainly did. Yeah. Wow. I remember when I because I have a Starbucks obsession. So I got a <laughs> information on my phone that showed what are the measures exactly in the Starbucks shop that I buy from, you know, and yeah, yeah. what was the temperature of the body of the delivery guy? What was the temperature of the body yeah. who was making the coffee? How was this cup sanitized? What tools they used to put it in the you know, bag and... So this was very, very transparent and reassuring. Yeah, that works. It gives the client, the consumer, uh, a lot of trust. Yeah. And so it's not nice to have anymore in China. It's just a must if you want to keep going. Yeah. So in the past six years, since you started till today, what did you see were the biggest changes in the consumer behavior? And how did it affect the way you handle the brands or the way you handle the interactions? I certainly saw a lot of changes. The changes, I mean, of course, the demand for, we only work with foreign brands. Eh? And mm -hmm. So the, the demand for these kind of products is still growing. I think people are more and more looking for authenticity. So it's very important for them. They don't like a Chinese label on a foreign product, right? So if it's regular import, it needs to have labeling and all these kind of things. But for, for Timo Global, you don't need that. And, and you really see also that they appreciate that. A Russian label that they can't read, they prefer that over a Chinese label because that's not authentic anymore. Although maybe labeling just happens right after import, but it's not that's 
So the authenticity, I think, is, is still something they're, they're really looking for. Yeah, behavior online is, of course, it's shifted a lot to social e-commerce. Yeah? So that, that, of course, is a difference between six years ago and the whole KUL live streaming thing, which is now really, it's a bit on a brink, actually. Yeah? I mean, there's a lot of regulations now around the live streaming industry. Still very effective to get people to buy your products, but so that that wasn't there six years ago. So it's a really uh, additional tool you have now to reach people. And how do you uh, use it? Do you use it? Is it something that you would do, or you outsource it to somebody, or the brand does it? I mean, we're working with the KOL, so with the influencers, it's something we do ourselves. So we work with uh, these are also companies, of course. Eh? Mm-hmm. Uh, you, yes. you don't realize uh, like. We did a live stream, uh, which was also on CCTV during the CIE. So we did that with a, a brand called uh, Longevica. It's a health brand from the US. So Sherry was the, the live streamer. That's a company. 200 people were there. Yeah. <laughs> but you would be surprised. I was doing a training for a 150-year-old Japanese corporation. And they wanted to understand China as a source of inspiration for quick development under very, you know, challenging circumstances. And we interviewed one very successful KOL. She's the biggest KOL for beauty. On She has about 3 million followers. Mm-hmm. And uh, she said that there are four types. of So it's the whole ecosystem. You cannot think about KOL as one. KOL is just for building the initial impression. Then there is KOC which is key opinion consumer who likes to buy stuff and shows what they're buying. Then there are KOS, which is live streamers who can sell key opinion sales. And then there is KOF, key opinion fans who are doing group buying. They're making groups and they're buying, you know, purchasing things together. So when you're thinking about like digital influencer marketing, you need to think about all these four groups and they have their own, yeah. methods of engaging the end consumer <laughs> it's yeah. not my cup of tea it's just i got to know about it because we were doing that training and i'm just thinking wow this is so sophisticated <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely so, yeah, was not right. there just six years ago was not even close no. nothing like that no. yeah i yeah, know and also of course the different models you have now where the, of course uh, Huma, alibaba with Huma, with the hybrid uh, online, Correct, yeah. offline. That always changed very quickly in the last years. You have uh, things like Ding Dong, uh, Ding Dong Mai Tai, where you have the, the very quick delivery from the... Basically, it's a different logistics model. Eh? You have the group buying for compounds. There's so many of these things that uh, weren't around uh, six years ago. And, and you really have to keep up very quickly that things like, oh, never heard of that. But, you know... Let's you do it. To, yeah. It <laughs> That's good. a Chinese uh, way. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> Not yeah, two yeah. months consideration of pros and cons. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. So do you think you will have more cold chain products? Or you think you will be... What are the categories that you will be focusing on for the next no, year, for, for example? For us, it's food and then... So cold chain, I wouldn't really say, see that we would go into meat or fish or these kind of things. So it's more, it will be focused on ice cream and, and, and chocolates and these kind of things. What we about re- ready-to-eat meals at home that are frozen? There is a speculation that this might develop. Yeah, we don't do that yet. We have talked, we looked into this for a Belgian corporation to ready-made, so it's like... A, uh, lasagna, yes. uh, pastas, these kind of things. It's still a fairly under, underdeveloped uh, online, at least. On the other hand, five years ago, nobody's buying pizza online, frozen. 
and now you do start seeing that. So wow, uh, it's something that will come. But it, I think it's still, you know, as I advise that client, if you want to enter China for this kind of products, you need to have a, a long-term strategy. You're not going to make money in the first two or three years because you need to invest too much in getting people familiar with the concept of a frozen lasagna. They might know a lasagna from a restaurant, but a lot of them actually don't because they never go to an Italian restaurant. Yes. So they, <laughs> to, to educate them, uh, now everybody knows pizza. So and maybe in five years, everybody knows uh, lasagna. I don't know, but it takes time. It takes time. Hmm. Okay. So, and what do you think those imported foods, what advantages do they have over local brands that are becoming very, very quick to adapt to any needs of the locals? How do you think this market will continue to stay competitive of imported brands in food, especially? Because it seems like Beyond Meat, for example, is really challenged in China because of the Chinese vegetarian culture. It's been here for so many years and they already have all kinds of, you know, vegetarian chicken or whatever developed. Mm. So, and in order to suit the flavors and make it an everyday meal choice. You really need to develop very quickly to the tastes and in different regions, there will be different tastes. So what works yeah. overseas, like a vegan burger will not probably mm. work in China in the same way. So this is at least my challenge that I see that it really takes at least a year to develop a product that really will be scalable in China through yeah. offline channels. I think the key for success is Partly what you say also, it, 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 they need, you need to be flexible, you need to adapt, be able and quickly also adapt yes. to the needs of the market. We have seen that with some clients that they were, were willing, some are just not willing to adapt, which is really wrong, but some are willing <laughs> to adapt, but it takes so long. It takes yes. so long for the, and, and sometimes you, 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 you're, you're missing a trend, you know, just because of it, uh, because it took like a year to get this product developed that, that actually suits the market. So I think for... A lot of European companies or Western companies in general, they don't realize how different the market is and that you really need to adapt to it. I mean, we've been here a long time, so you've seen so many examples of even really large corporations failing because they fail to adapt to, to Chinese needs. But still, companies are making those mistakes. And you know, the, the good ones where we like to work with, they're the ones that at least are open and you can have a discussion about it. And some, it also happens sometimes that we say to a client, I don't think this is going to work. And we started working with them and they say, look, maybe, maybe we should not work together anymore because you hire us as the experts in e-commerce and, and for food. And, and if you do need to take our advice into consideration, because if you don't, it's not going to work. And then it's not interesting for, for us, but also actually not interesting for you. So I have to say most clients are, you know, do realize that, but you, some, yeah, you have some exemptions sometimes. Unfortunately, that is the example of working with Amazon. You just place your products on Amazon and then you pay for exposure. You don't mm. have this relationship like you can have with your kind of service provider. You know, so it's just I think that the experience is yeah. not there. People don't see you or me as their partners. They see it as like unnecessary chain in the link of command. You know? <laughs> yeah. So it's just the habit is not there. And I think that changing that mindset is quite important to see that, you know, we are working very hard to make this a, a possibility for you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think I've done some like before COVID. I also did some speeches at the events where, where we work together with Alibaba. 
And then you do from that point, people coming or brands coming from that kind of thing, they do see you as a partner because they do see Alibaba as a partner or Timo. So, but and, and now you just uh, some uh, yeah, for some you're just a link in between. But but once they really Alibaba really positions you as a partner for the brand, that helps. That helps to see that relationship that way. But you know, it's in the end you can't work with every brand. At least for us, we really it's it's also really about the people you work with. You need to have a, a smooth working relationship. And there's also sometimes I, I meet brands and, and just on a personal level, I think, I don't know. I don't think this is going to be a good match. Just don't fine. feel it. Yeah, yeah. And that's fine. You know, you don't have to. That's the good thing of having your own company, right? Yeah. You, you don't have to work with anybody. If you don't want to, you don't have to. So that's fine. People, people ask me, so when do you work? I say, whenever I want. It just happens yeah. that I like my work, so I work all the time then, right? Yeah. <laughs> and the last question. If there is one thing that you constantly have to explain to the brands or the people who contact you about China, what is it? And what would you like them to know before they talk to you so that it would make their life easier? Not necessarily yours, because I'm sure you're patient and you can explain all of this, but maybe something could help them. Mm, good one. I think we already touched upon it a little bit, is that mm. you need to be, that China is different, that everything from what social media is used and also how people use social media to their buying habits online and and also the possibilities here. Of course, I would gladly explain, but if you tell a Dutch person or a Dutch brand that you can do ice cream delivery, uh, that you can do ice cream online, they'll be like, what? Like it's, that's not possible in Holland. <laughs> There's no people going around. No, it is just not reasonable. Yeah, Dutch people it's, are very possible. reasonable. So they yeah, would think yeah. this is just a waste of time. Yeah. So <laughs> I think it's just the, the fact how everything is so different here and that you need to realize that and, and stop saying, yeah, but you know, in our country, we do it like this. Yeah. Thank but you very much for, yeah. for talking to me and sharing the stories. I think it was very, very informative. And at least I learned a lot. <laughs> uh, it, was, it was my first podcast ever actually so. oh welcome you did very well <laughs> thank you <laughs> doing business in China is a complex world you can quickly feel alone and lost in its maze but don't worry China Business Cast is here for you sign up for our newsletter and regular updates on our website at www.chinabusinesscast.com thanks for tuning in